Hey, hey, it's Ellie. Welcome to Minute Mysteries. You're in the right place. So, you know the drill? We're just gonna read three detectograms and uh, try and figure them out. And if you figure them out before me, good job. You're a certified smart person. That implies that I'm not a certified smart person, which is true. <laughs> anyway, uh, last time I think I got half of one right. And even that was kind of dubious, so maybe we'll do better today. So, yeah. Anyway, let's get right into it. Murder at Coney Island Inspector Kelly and Professor Fordney were seated in the former's office when policeman Fanning and his charge entered. After Fanning's hurried explanation, Jasper told his story. I'm the ticket taker on a merry-go-round at Coney Island. This being Saturday, we had a big crowd. The trip was almost over when I reached out saying, Ticket, please. And I see this woman sitting up in the middle of the chariot with that terrible look on her face. She didn't answer, and when I shook her, she slumped over in the corner. I screamed, jumped off, and ran for the manager. I got blood on my hand when I shook her. Yes, sir. She'd ridden a couple times, and I seen the man she was with on the two rides before, continued Jasper, giving a detailed description of him. I happened to see him jump off just before I got to her. The doctor said she had been stabbed through the heart and had died instantly, queried Professor Fordney. That's right, sir, replied the policeman. It seems strange, Jasper, remarked the professor, that you can give such a good description of this woman's companion on two previous rides when you just happened to notice him jump off. Does the merry-go-round ever make you dizzy? No, sir, I'm, I'm used to it. Well, Inspector, said Fordney, turning to his friend, I suppose you are going to hold this man? Certainly, replied Kelly. That's just about the dizziest story I've heard in a long time. What justified the police in holding Jasper? Okay, so so often the way that we think when we read these things is like, oh, the, the last thing that they mention when they talk to him is the most important, because that's what tips them off that it's false, you know? So they literally mention twice that, you know, it has to do with dizziness. But I've used this tactic before, and I've been tricked. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm not so sure. How did he walk over and shake her on the shoulder and not notice the blood, even though in the action of shaking her on the shoulder, he got blood on his hands? Did he not see the blood? If there was enough of blood to get on his hands, do you think he would see it? I'm just saying. <laughs> and also, ooh, also in the very beginning, he says, I see this woman sitting up in the middle of the chariot with that terrible look on her face. This woman is sitting up? She's been stabbed in the chest. Would she be sitting up? <laughs> and it says in the middle of the chariot, so that means she hadn't, like, slumped against one of the walls or anything. Like, she slumps over after he shakes her. So... <laughs> I'm not trusting Jasper. <laughs> I know he's the one being held, but, like, you know, I'm really suspicious of him now. He mentions how the woman is sitting up in the middle, and how he doesn't notice the blood. I think that's kind of strange. Also... Uh, when he saw him jump off the merry-go-round, um, wouldn't the merry-go-round go back around pretty soon after and he'd be able to see him running off? Like, if he jumps off, let's, let's, let's imagine this like the face of a clock, right? So if he jumps off when the chariot that he was in was at 12 o'clock, then it wouldn't take very long for the thing to spin completely around and back to 12 o'clock. I mean, it's continuously turning. So even if he was running away, he'd be able to see him more than just him jumping off. I don't know if that actually means anything, because, like, I don't know, cause he was probably more focused on the woman anyway. But it doesn't mention that he saw him again after he jumped off, which, what, did he hide behind a bush or something? 
Yeah, so what Professor Forty mentions first, he's like, how did you give such a good description of this guy when you've only happened to notice him jump off? And like, that's kind of what I was thinking, but yeah, that, I w that's kind of what I'm thinking right now about the thing where it's like, he just saw him jump off. Like, did he not notice him before? Like, if he recognized him enough to know that he was the same person that she'd been with before, then he wouldn't have to have seen him jump off to have given a description of him. Like, even if he didn't jump off, he could have given a description of the guy because he recognized him. I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes sense in my brain. <laughs> so yeah, I think my ideas here are about the jumping off thing and about like how he doesn't mention seeing him again, which I don't know if that matters or not, but... Uh, and also how the woman was sitting up in the middle of the chariot and not slumped over already. And also how he didn't see the blood. And also, thirdly, how, like, if he recognized the guy already, then he wouldn't have had to see him jump off to give a good description of him. Huh, anyway. <laughs> I don't know if any of that hits the mark, but let's look at the description and find out. <clears throat> Jasper said he found the woman sitting up in the middle of the chariot. The motion of the merry-go-round would have made it impossible for a dead body to remain upright in the middle of the chariot. Aha! I got it. <laughs> And I think that was the first thing I mentioned too, how it was weird that the woman was sitting up even though she was dead. And at that point, I had totally forgotten that they were on a merry-go-round in the first place. Wow. <laughs> Whew, okay. Got one. On to the next one, baby. Too clever. Receiving no reply to my ring and finding the door unlocked, I went in, said Albert Lynch. Dawson was seated at his desk, shot through the head. Seeing he was dead, I called the police and remained here touch anything, Lynch? asked Professor Fordney. No, sir. Nothing. Positive of that, are you? Absolutely, sir. The professor made a careful examination of the desk and found Dawson had been writing a letter at the bottom of which, and covered by the dead man's hand, was a penned message, A.L. did the... and then weakly trailed off. Further examination disclosed several kinds of writing paper, a pen tray holding the recently used pen, inkwell, eraser, stamps, letters, and bills. The gun from which the shot had been fired was on the floor by the side of the chair, and the bullet was found embedded in the divan. After a few questions, Fordney was quickly convinced of Lynch's innocence. "'What do you make of it, Professor?' inquired Inspector Kelly. "'Though the scrawled note certainly looks like Dawson's writing, I'm sure an expert will find it isn't. I'm not surprised to find the gun free of prints. Pretty thorough job, this. Good thing for you, Lynch, and for us, too, that the murderer was careless about something.' "'Right,' said Kelly." But you aren't such a wise old owl, Fordney. This is like the Morrow case we handled, remember? <laughs> Good for you, Inspector, laughed the professor. How did both men so quickly determine that the incriminating note had not been left by Dawson? Interesting, okay. I think that the person who actually killed Dawson was trying to frame Albert Lynch for killing Dawson because Dawson was writing a note that said that Albert Lynch did something. Okay, <laughs> I just made that connection. Okay, uh, let's see. The door was unlocked, and Albert Lynch found Dawson sitting at his desk shot through the head. It doesn't say what position he was in, so maybe he was, like, slumped over, maybe he was, like, you know, his head was flung back or something, I don't know. Not that it matters, but it just doesn't mention that. Uh, let's see. Oh, 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 I think I got it. So, um, the note was probably supposed to seem like he had been shot in the middle of when he was writing it. Because it, it said A.L. did the and then it weakly trailed off, you know? So it probably, like, looked like he was shot while he was writing. And yet, the recently used pen 
was sitting in the pen tray and not still in the dead man's hand. So if he was shot while he was writing the note, as it's, you know, supposed to seem, then the pen would still be in his hand. <laughs> but it's not, it's in the tray, because here it says, Further examination disclosed several kinds of writing paper, a pen tray holding the recently used pen, and the other things. Oh my gosh, I think I got it. I'm so proud of myself. Okay, <laughs> let's look at this. Here's the solution. The murderer tried to give the impression that Dawson had died before finishing the incriminating note. Had he written it and died before completing it, he could not have put the pen back in the tray where it was found. Yes! In his effort to incriminate Lynch, the murderer had been too cautious. A costly oversight. Oh my gosh. Two for two so far. Let's go. Man, I'm doing way better than last week. Oh my gosh. I'm redeeming myself right now. I am so proud of myself. Last week was very sad. Anyways, on to the next one. Bloody murder. Oh, sounds fun. <laughs> A bad mess, this, said Professor Fordney to Sergeant Reynolds as they viewed the bloody scene. Yeah, I wish these guys wouldn't be quite so thorough when they bump themselves off, replied Reynolds as he set grimly to work. A man with his throat cut, the head almost severed, slat slumped over a blood-splattered desk. What a horrible sight! His blood-stained coat flung across the room. The razor, the shirt, the tie, his hands covered with blood, made a ghastly and awesome picture, framed by the flickering light of a dying candle. Wow, that is... oh man, just picture that. Like a dying candle lighting up a room just splattered with blood. That's so crazy. Oh my gosh. After turning on the lights, Fordney bent down to take a closer look at the man. His face seems vaguely familiar, Sergeant, but I can't recall at the moment where I've seen him. How long has he been dead, Doctor? Uh, about two hours, replied the police surgeon. At this moment, the telephone rang. The caller, upon hearing Fordney's voice, immediately disconnected. Odd, murmured the professor as he hung up the receiver. I remember now where I saw this man. His name is Thompson. As he glanced around, he observed that the alarm clock on the dresser had stopped just two hours and fifteen minutes before. The telephone rang again, and Fordney motioned Reynolds to answer. Hello? He said. Mr. Thompson stepped out for a few minutes. Leave your number. I'll have him call you. The man at the other end inquired who was speaking, and, when Reynolds replied, a friend, he hung up. Better trace that call, Sergeant. This is murder, said Fordney. What? exclaimed Reynolds. Still looks like suicide to me. Do you agree with Reynolds or the professor? Why? Okay, so they're at this murder scene, right? It's very bloody. It sucks. Blood everywhere. The lights were off. It was lit by a dying candle. It was a very interesting, lovely scene. <laughs> and the strange thing about this story that isn't unusual about these puzzles is that someone called twice. See, I don't know how the phone calls are connected to the murder. Because, like, did the did the caller want the dead person to answer? Or did they not want the dead person to answer? Oh, I think the phone calls might have been for the murder to kind of check their work. To see if they actually died. Which, I, I, I don't know, but that's what I'm thinking. Like, if they call the dead person's apartment and nobody answers, that means they were successful. And if the dead person answers, or the supposed dead person answers, then they failed. So that makes sense. But like, what kind of murder would you have to commit to, to necessitate you calling later and checking? Because that's kind of what I'm imagining. Hmm. The calls are obviously important, but let's focus now on the, um, the, the scene. 
like all the blood and stuff because like literally the title of this is called bloody murder and they spend a good paragraph just describing the insane bloodiness of this so he cut his throat right and his head was almost severed this is crazy i should probably put a content warning on this later <laughs> honestly um but he got it on the razor which i'm assuming he cut himself with the shirt which makes sense because the blood would kind of flow onto that the tie which is kind of there too his hands that makes sense um, they're all covered with blood, and one thing strange is that his bloodstained coat was flung across the room. Which, it could only get bloodstained after you cut yourself. And if you cut yourself to the extent that your head was almost severed, could you chuck the coat? <laughs> Sometimes these puzzles trick you with red herrings. I think the phone calls might be red herrings. Like, I'm sure they're related to the murder, but I think the actual solution here is the coat. <laughs> Because, like, it makes sense that the shirt, the tie, his hands, the razor are all covered in blood. And it, and it, you know, describes that and stuff. But, like, the coat just chucked across the room. It's already bloody. Like, you'd think that after you, like, cut your throat apart, basically, you wouldn't have the presence of mind or the ability to throw a coat. Yeah, so actually, that's, like, that's my working thesis. I think that's a good, I think that's a good idea there. Oh, man. Okay. I think I'm confident enough in my answer that we can look at the solution. The professor knew it was not suicide because Thompson's coat, which was flung across the room, was bloodstained. Quite impossible if he had taken his own life. Oh my gosh, yes! <laughs> I saw past the red herrings. <laughs> oh man, I'm so glad that I stopped thinking about the phone calls and just focused on the scene. Oh man. Dude, I am over the moon. I just got three out of three right. What? That's happened maybe never? So, mm. Thank you, thank you. I would like to thank my family and my dog, even though I don't have one. And, uh, I don't know, Nancy Drew? <laughs> oh man, dude. Whew. I feel like Sherlock himself has possessed my body. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle, who? Sorry, who? <laughs> oh man, okay. Anyway, that's enough gloating. Um, yeah, I don't have much to say at the end here. I just want to say thank you for listening to this little mini episode every week. I love recording these because these puzzles are just so much fun. And I'm, as you can see, getting better. Um, but yeah, I love recording these episodes and they're a lot of fun. And I hope you guys enjoy them too because sometimes my long episodes that are like an hour long that's just, you know, continuing a novel can be kind of long and crazy. So I think it's always fun to kind of take a break and just, you know, read some detectograms. <laughs> so anyway... Oh, man, I hope you have a great Thursday, and yeah. Just a PSA before I go, guys. Um, dying isn't very good for your health. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.